Hey, my name is Bill Kennedy, and this is the Arden Labs podcast. And today, I have a special friend here, all the way from Malaysia, right? Dave Appleton. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Of course, it's late at night here. You just got up. We both got coffee, probably, so it's a good day. Both have coffee. Yeah, it's always interesting to find that time where everybody's awake when you're talking to people halfway around the world. But you kind of do that for a living, right? So you're a little bit used to this. Yeah, we're kind of in the same time zone mentally, I think. Brilliant. All right. So in this podcast, we talk to people who are in the tech industry. And I love to always get a sense of your background. I mean, why don't you tell everybody just in a couple of minutes what you're doing today, kind of where you are today, because I want to walk the path on how you got here. But maybe just like one or two minutes. Okay. Well, I mean, what I'm doing now, I'm doing a lot of work on the Ethereum blockchain. I'm mainly working as a consultant to a number of projects. means I don't have a proper job, which is wonderful. Um, (laughs) I mean, it it means I basically use skills from a number of sets of things I've picked up in the past. Go programming, which is one of my favorites. I also use smart contract programming on the Ethereum blockchain. So, I mean, that's where I am. I've been working a lot in, in financial applications recently as with a startup called Hello Gold, which allows ordinary people in emerging economies to put part of their savings into gold. The aim of this is that, particularly in the Southeast Asia region, we've seen a lot of currency fluctuation over the past 20 or 30 years. And as usual, it's not the affluent who get hit, it's the people with not so much to lose, but they tend to lose it. So I guess you could call that a financial inclusion project. I guess that's kind of my thing now. I I prefer to work on projects which have a little bit more of a social impact if possible. All right. That's good. That's perfect. That's perfect. Okay. So that kind of sets the stage on how I want to get to and you really being kind of hedged down on blockchain is interesting. I want to get us there. But one of the first questions I love asking our guests is, what is your first kind of memory of working on a computer? Oh, my first memory of working on a computer, I didn't even see a damn computer. I used to get into trouble at school. I mean, yeah, I was a typical nerd, but I was a bit of a dick. So I liked antagonizing the tough guys with predictable results. And so my class teacher, in order to try and keep me out of trouble, pushed me towards a computing group. Now, bear in mind, this was 1968 or 1969, something like that. And so we had a physics teacher who used who came from Imperial College, and he brought hand-hard punches. So you physically punch holes in the card to get one line of code. And so you have a deck of cards, and each week you would take this deck of cards to Imperial, put them in for a batch job. A couple of days later, collect the print out, telling you of all the syntax errors you've made. So you then go and repunch your cards and send them back the next. But it was interesting, and it was like, <laughs> I mean, it sort of stuck. I, I mean, I wasn't able to do it all the way through school, but it was my first experience. This is in high school, Dave. Like you're doing this in high school. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that physics teacher was amazing. He was one of the British phone freaks. Um, so so halfway through my A-levels, he was actually in the old Bailey being accused by the post office who used to run telecommunications of phone freaking. Phone freaking? Phone freaking, you know, using boxes, using boxes and things to navigate through the exchanges 
without paying for the calls. <laughs> so you had far more of it in the, in the US. But the thing was, they warned the GPO of the vulnerabilities in the phone system. The GPO told them, that's not possible. If you think you can do it, go ahead. And finally, when they were caught, <laughs> when they were caught doing it, GPO were not, not very pleased. But they did stupid things like making a phone call to their neighbor, but making the call go around the world twice. Wow. I mean, they knew the phone system inside out. <laughs> and you had this person as a teacher in high school. So you had really early access to all this stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. And then when I got to college, I mean, my first year, I did Imperial for one year. But I didn't particularly enjoy that, even though I had access to a CDC mainframe. But after that, I switched to electronics and got involved in microcomputers. And they threatened to throw me off the college mini computer for hacking other people's accounts, that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So did you end up graduating or you got kicked out? (laughs) Oh, no, no. I I did graduate with a degree in electronics. (laughs) (laughs) I went to work for ICL, which was Britain's mainframe company. We used to call it Britain's answer to IBM, but it's a very sarcastic answer. It wasn't, they didn't do very well. What year is this now? I guess you're talking 73, 74? No, oh, no, no. I graduated in 1980. Oh, okay. I was very convoluted college. I like, did a first year in physics at Imperial. I then shifted to King's and did electronics. I took an industrial year, which all worked perfectly to get me in line for the first class doing like microprocessors. So in 80, when I graduated, I went to work for ICL and I worked in the technology department. So I was like programming mini computers and test equipment to evaluate memory chips. To validate that they were working? No, 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 no. Not working. It's like quality. We were doing like statistical quality tests because ICL was like the first mainframe company to use semiconductor RAMs from people like Intel. And so there were a lot of problems, soft errors and things coming in on on memory chips that they'd never experienced with the previous kind of storage. And it's all due to things like to the way the chips are laid out. When they got up to 64K DRAMs, it was alpha particles from the case impacting the bit lines, which were flipping bits, all sorts of things like this, which basically brought in a whole load of technology now, which makes things a lot more reliable. But it was like interesting times because it was like totally new for the computer manufacturers. So are you doing that writing assembly? You're writing machine code? What are you doing there? Oh, well, that was a lot of fun because I programmed the mini computer in assembler. We programmed the actual tester in microcode. So in other words, you were programming it on a level where you were controlling the circuits directly. It's like wow. even lower than a cent. And these things were designed using ECL logic, which was like the fastest stuff around. If you touch an ECL chip or burn your hands, it was that hot. Yeah, so we designed the push patterns through the chips at, at ultra fast speeds. Yeah, you because know, like the thing is, because some of these tests, you know, you're like your chip is a, an array of cells. And so with different internal architectures, different patterns with this, different memory patterns could destroy different RAMs. So we wrote all kinds of tests to exercise these steps. And the weird thing is, by working on that in the UK, it made it really easy for me to flip to a job in Singapore, working for Fairchild, who were one of the IC manufacturers, where I got 
virtually the same job in Singapore. Ah, for the manufacturers. That way they, they wanted you to do this before it got to the customer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you're living in the UK at that point, right? You're in the UK. So I find it interesting, like you're still in APAT, right? Like you're still in that part of the world. But when you moved to Singapore, what year is that? I mean, we're talking 80s, right? Yeah. So Singapore wasn't what it is today. I mean, I love the city. It's amazingly engineered, but. Yeah, I mean, I've reached there at the last two or three years of the rough patch of Singapore. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly becoming a lot more modern. There were a few of the new Orchard Road touches, but not too many of them. So it was like the old CK Tangs, not the new flashy CK Tangs. So it looked a very Chinese place. Yeah, it was, just, it was like far more raw back then. Were you excited about moving to Singapore at the time? Was that yeah, a- it was like, it was really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know why. I don't know what it was, but I mean, I, I just felt that I was moving to the right place. And it was going to be a lot of fun, and I couldn't see myself moving back. <laughs> so you take this job in Singapore now, kind of doing the same same work. How long are you with that company doing that work? Well, I think they actually only lasted for one year because I mean, one of the problems with Fairchild was that while they started the IC revolution, or the micro, they didn't even start the microprocessor, they started the semiconductor revolution. But people left Fairchild, of course, to found Intel and all the advanced companies, you know, to do the microprocess and so on. And Fairchild found themselves producing devices that were somewhat behind the times, right? You know, I came to the conclusion that most of their chips were about four years out of date, and they were actually producing for the replacement market, not for the initial sales market. Mm-hmm. Now, there were other areas where they were absolutely on the cutting edge. They had some of the fastest logic devices on the market. And they did a whole load of really interesting stuff. But the memory division I came out to, yeah, they were a bit behind. But that was fine. It got me to Singapore. So where do you go from there? So that side of the business is coming. Now you've got this really low level. You have this very proprietary kind of knowledge base, right? And programming at this point. So like, what's the next step? Well, I mean, at that time, I was kind of like interested in, Pascal and things like that. That was the language of the time. And I found the job at Singapore Polytechnic. I took a couple of years teaching electronics. I introduced the Pascal programming class to that in there. And then I basically worked for companies designing test equipment for them for different kinds of things. I spent a year or so with a company doing test equipment for civil engineering. And then I did 10 years with a company designing PCB repair equipment. So what we did there was we designed systems. The electronics would allow you to test the chips inside the circuits. So like you do it by overdriving test patterns into the chips, if you like, louder than the other chips around them could. And then you would have capture and evaluate the output. But I think it was that kind of time when, oh, in fact, all along I've been sitting on, on the boundary of hardware and software. So I was writing the software for that. And we started off doing it in Pascal. We built a set of systems, a set of test equipment that was well beating for about 10 years. All based around a ton of modular two codes from compilers. We designed test languages. We built compilers for those languages. I guess it was a little bit like the bike code that you see today. So we were running like a VM that talked to the hardware and stuff. 
So what year is this? Because you spent 10 years there. So now we're getting into the early 90s at this point. Well, that's, I was doing that company from 86 to 96. Okay. So 96 is kind of where the internet really starts to come into play, right? Indeed. As we were closing the company down, we got our first internet connection. I mean, I built our first website. Hold on a second. So this is the cool part, Dave. This is the cool part, right? Because up until then, I mean, you're not even low level. You're hardware level deep into the engineering, right? And then you build a website, which is so far away from the hardware, right? I'm really curious what you thought when you started building that website and you're now playing with early versions of HTML and because it's a completely different world. Talk to me about that. It was so easy back then. I mean, you didn't even have CSS. You didn't have JavaScript. Come on, it was Netscape Navigator or nothing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I remember while we were still there, Microsoft introduced Internet Explorer 3 and broke the internet because everybody was downloading it and the internet could not cope. <laughs> but you went from worrying about nanoseconds to seconds, right? Like you have this huge shift in your head where if something happens in a second, it's, it's fast enough, right? Did you enjoy building that website? Did you enjoy getting out of the weeds in a sense? I think it's still programming. At the end of the day, it's still programming, and it's just something different. I mean, I'd always enjoyed learning new, like, new programming languages, new this, new that. I mean, the last few years there, I'd done C++, Paul and Pascal for Windows, things like that. You know, like learning about like the new protocols, the FTP protocol and stuff like that, it was quite good fun. And of course, this was early enough in the internet that every single computer inside our company, we didn't know anything about security, every single computer had its own public IP address. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess you could get those blocks from the ISP at that point. I guess we didn't have NAT yet. <laughs> Looking back now, it makes you shiver, no, no. right? Looking back now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a block of 64 IP addresses. Wow. <laughs> so I was there basically until the company management kind of changed it all around and decided they wanted to change the direction. In our case, I think we did, the company just ended up closing down and I turned out the lights. And then I started my own company. I started building test equipment again. Well, now, actually, the aim was to do the same thing, to build test equipment, but I didn't have any money. So I built websites, I repaired computers, I did anything to turn a buck until I got to a point where I kind of got pushed by everybody towards a few people who had the kind of requirements that I could, that would sync with what I could do. So I got pushed towards one guy who was doing like pressure sensors. And so, like, I worked with him on doing a building of a big pressure sensing system for Hewlett Packard for monitoring the injection molding of the plastic test beds. Someone else pushed me towards a machine vision manufacturer, Cognex. And, like, through them, I got introduced to Molex, who make the electronic connectors. And I built vision systems to inspect the connectors. And I think there was a time when, if you had a notebook, there was probably a 50% chance one of my vision systems had inspected your the connectors holding the hard drive in. How did that work? Because you're almost doing some AI there, right? Like you're taking images and inspecting. Like how does that work? 
Oh, it's not really AI, but it is image processing. You use image for a lot of things. You can do recognition and stuff like that. That is more towards the AI side of things. But you can also do things like edge detection. And then you're checking for things like coplanarity, so that all of the pins are in a straight line. You can measure the distances between the pins, make sure there's only a certain amount of deviation, things like that. Yeah, some of these were pre-built tools from Cognex. Some of them we had to build ourselves. On some of the later jobs, we built a high-speed system for detecting blemishes. You know, like if you go into a hospital, they stick a drip in your arm. There's this little plastic thing halfway up where the, the saline from the bag goes into, and it accumulates there before it goes down the tube into your arm. We inspected those because they were having flashbacks which caused blemishes in them that made them have brown spots. Uh, so we inspected, yeah, we were inspecting those and we were doing something like 450 parts a minute, I think it was, which is pretty fast. And all this manufacturing was happening in Singapore, I guess. So that was all happening in Singapore. I mean, I mean, Singapore is the government's approach in Singapore on independence because Singapore, as you know, is a very small island. It has virtually no farming area or anything else. It's, it's just a collection of interconnected cities. And so the government's approach on independence was to bring in multinational manufacturing companies and then try to encourage the growth of local companies to support them. And so, uh, yeah, that one was done by, by Bacta. Uh, I think previously they were called Travanol. They probably changed their name again now. Yeah, we were doing, basically we were doing color analysis there before the textbooks were written. So you're back into that lower level stuff again. So what year is it now that you're kind of finishing up that work? Now we're in the new millennial here? Yeah, I mean, I, I had my company from 96 through to about 2000. Well, I officially closed the doors on my company in 2012. But I guess the writing was on the wall in about 2010. I was kind of winding it down from then. Is that just because what you were building just isn't being built anymore? I mean, oh no, 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 no. I mean, there was plenty of work for it, but it was. I guess I had got a little bit jaded with always having to queue up for an hour at the entrance of a factory before the person came to take you in to see the equipment and all of that stuff. You know, it's, it's much like the difference between software design and hardware design. You got a big turnaround time on hardware, software. You just recompile. It's the same thing. It was just, you know, just like all of that time, you know, just the amount of work traveling to do it. I mean, I'd also had a, a few personal upheavals. So, like, end of 2012, I ended up moving to Malaysia. So then what did you do at that point? So it's time to kind of, I guess, go work. A lot of things have been changing there as well. You see, I mean, back as far as 2010, it's partly to do with Singapore being very small, amazingly well-connected. But it's also the introduction of, firstly, things like Yahoo Groups and then Facebook, that the engineers in Singapore started getting connected, right? Before that, you were a software engineer in a back room. You didn't really even know any other software engineers. But suddenly, you know, the first hackerspace appeared, right? And I discovered on Yahoo Groups, Hackerspace Singapore, and someone had given them a bunch of Arduinos, which is still in my area, right? So I said, well, I can run you some classes. And I started running classes on Arduinos and then Raspberry Pi. And then you know, using processing, I don't know if you came across it. It's like, it's like an Arduino-based environment for doing originally Java and then JavaScript, hmm. designed at non-programmers. So 
you know, I started getting involved with the hacker groups, which led me to the first thing I got was a there's a company in Singapore that raised money to Kickstarter to build 3D printers. So I got myself a job with them briefly. And then somebody else started advertising for just someone who was like really hands-on, down and dirty with software. And when I went, went to see the guy, I realized this was a guy I'd taught in one of my Arduino classes, and he was recruiting for a blockchain startup. Mm-hmm. So what year is this? This was 2014 at this point. 2014. Okay. This is cool. Okay. So uh, I went in to see this guy, Andras Christoph, a Hungarian. He had quite, probably had a more profitable past than I was because he used to be a VP of engineering at Yahoo. He had done one in the managing team of one of the largest Asian startup exits. But anyway, yeah, we were like really hit it off. And so I joined his team. The first thing we were building was Bitcoin ATMs. And pretty soon after that, we pivoted to building a blockchain. All right. Before you go there, what I'm super curious about before we go down that, what was it about the blockchain or about this virtual currency stuff that connected with you? What did you see in it? Because you've really kind of resonated in this tech. And I'm just curious what it was. What did you see? I mean, the point is I just got remarried. I mean, I was trying to find some stable income, not only for the fact I just got remarried, but also to pay off all the past debts. And I was evaluating all the options, and I just felt that, firstly, this virtual currency thing was a new area. If anything, it was going to grow. And I also saw that the person I was working with, even if his company didn't succeed, he was well enough connected. As long as I did well, he was well enough connected for me to be able to for him to help me find something new. And that actually came true because like what we were doing for various reasons, it didn't quite work out. We ended up closing the company after about a year. He then helped me find work in Hello Gold. He was working as a consultant for Hello Gold and he got me a place in Hello Gold. And the blockchain we were working on there, it was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was technical. I mean, if, it's, if it involves programming, it's interesting. And I came into Hello Gold, we started learning about Ethereum. And Ethereum for me was a total new world in terms of programming. So it's like on Hello Gold, when I'd moved from working with blockchain to, hey, this is really what I want to do. All right. So in this startup, you're thinking about ATMs. What was the idea behind the ATM? Well, basically, it's, it's an ATM. Oh, you got some in there. I mean, you, know, you go along, you stick cash in the ATM, you get a piece of paper out with a barcode on it, you scan that. You scan that into a Bitcoin wallet and you've got Bitcoin. You can buy or sell Bitcoin through the ATM. Okay, like an exchange. And then what was the other idea that company had you were mentioned? So we had an idea to build a different kind of blockchain based on another product called Ripple. We wanted to build something that could be used to build community currencies. So like this would allow one currency to work through an exchange to another currency, but you've got areas of trust. And we foresaw even back then that sometimes you would need to have applications that require government permission or government control. There are a lot of libertarians who think, okay, Bitcoin will replace everything. If Bitcoin ends up replacing everything, you've got a huge fight with every government in the world because they want to maintain financial sovereignty. So we were looking at something that could work hand in hand with the government currencies. You could have privacy but not total anonymity. So like if the government got a court order, they could actually insist that we revealed people involved in a transaction. So 
you know, if there was some shady business going on. But as default, we wanted it to be private. That was what we were building. So I remember when I was first hearing about the virtual currencies, the the big promotion was around kind of like more of the third world where like in Africa, everyone's using telephone companies own basically the currency, right? Like you buy everything with a short code on your phone, your paychecks go to the telephone company. So I remember originally hearing the ideas of people being able to buy fruit on the street through this virtual currency, but that didn't seem to happen. And I always wondered if it was because the amount of time it took to validate a transaction. I mean, what are your thoughts about where this can still be used today? And I'd like to know how Hello Gold is using it. Well, Hello Gold actually isn't using it much at all now, but half of the reasons you're talking about. We were kind of keeping up with our transaction volume on our test networks until we got to the point where we got a new B2B platform on board and they started from running promotions to get people on board and people started gaming the system and people would buy gold, sell gold, buy gold, sell gold, buy gold, sell gold just to get the points that they got from buying the gold. So at the end of the day, using the current technology, we couldn't do that. There is, of course, a, a lot of research on speeding everything up. There are some blockchains out there now which claim to be faster. Ethereum 2 is due to launch its first phase either late this month or early next month, right? There are lots of different technologies, either on a single shard or a multi-sharded system, aimed at speeding all of this up. Plus, you've got level two solutions, all sorts of crazy stuff. But uh, there are one or two countries now which have introduced a national virtual currency. <laughs> Place really? it on block. One of the guys I know in Singapore, I think, worked on introducing one in Bahamas, Barbados, something like that. Not quite sure which one. There are, I think, was it the Marshall Islands that they wanted to do it as well? But it hasn't yet hit the mainstream, but it's hitting the mainstream, I think, in more important places. At this point, once Ethereum comes along, you have a difference between cryptocurrency and blockchain. Right? In terms of cryptocurrency, it has proved useful in places like Argentina, where people in Argentina are buying things using US dollar-backed stable coins. So you have something called DAI, and you have various other currencies which are paid through the US dollar. And so it's a little bit like post-First World War Germany, where you had hyperinflation. And so people would cash out their paycheck as fast as they can into a stable currency. Uh, but it's still on that. In terms of like massive blockchain projects, you know, it's still being worked on. But there are certain niches where it is starting to gain traction. One of the biggest things about blockchain is it provides absolute accountability. If I sign a transaction and that attraction has been on the blockchain for more than a few minutes, it is unrepudiatable. You know, I cannot backtrack on it, and it's publicly observable. Instead of building a massive system around the blockchain, there are people now who are building settlement layers on the blockchain. So like my ERP system, instead of trying to transact directly into your ERP system, we go through a very small module, which is on the blockchain. So I put my orders into there. From there, they go into yours. Your confirmation comes back. So the interface between our systems is public. Right? Now, JP Morgan are doing that for international trade settlement between banks. Now, when we talk about the blockchain, right, is there a 
kind of public general purpose blockchain that everybody can use or are people kind of setting up their own private blockchains for their apps and their businesses? Well, I mean, the whole concept of a blockchain is it has to be public. It has to be public. It has to be accountable. This is the value proposition behind Ethereum. So in Ethereum, you can have code on the blockchain and you can interact with that code by sending transactions to it and you can read values out of it. So it means that you, know, you can have kind of almost anything on there. You could just have, for example, your meter, you know, your electricity meter, pushing the readings every month onto the block, into a contract on the blockchain. And that contract can then calculate how much you owe based upon the current electricity price pushed in by the electricity board. And you could read from there how much you owe, or the electricity board can read it. But it goes way on from there. You can have investment things on the contract. You can have things that represent financial agreements. This is starting to come into place now. There is tokenization now happening in China, due to happen soon in Malaysia, and various other places on the world where assets have the title on the blockchain. Right? And the title is a contract which can be transferred. So it's owned by one address, or you can move it to another address, but who is the current owner of it? So all the rules about what you can do with it are well-defined, and you can see the source code, so everyone can verify what it does. You can see all the transactions that went into it, so you can see how everybody's interacted with it. But you are saying now, like, Hello Gold is starting to kind of move away from leveraging the blockchain for the transactions that they're working on today? Yeah, because mainly due to the massive volume of transactions. I mean, you're never going to get not for quite some time until we've managed to solve a load of the speed issues. Will you get full speed financial transactions? You are never going to challenge SWIFT or Visa just because of the huge number of transactions that are going through it. Definitely a niche, but it, it's a niche which is finding applications now. So let's circle back to something you said earlier that you were saying how one of the things that you like about Hello Gold was there was a, a community aspect to it, or you, what is it that you said? Talk to me more about that social aspect of the tech and what you're trying to do there. Well, okay, so back in 97, which was, okay, well, firstly, in about October 97, I started my company, Callista Research Labs, doing my test equipment. Two weeks later, we had the Asian financial crisis, right, which shows you I've got an amazing sense of time. What that did was it took the value of the Singapore dollar in terms to the rest of the world currencies went down by maybe, I know, pulling numbers off my head, 10, 20%. The ringgit, 50% of the US dollar value. The Thai bar Indonesian rupiah, they went way down, 20%, 23%, something like that. Now, if you're buying from the farm next door, it's not a problem. But if you're buying something imported, that's a big problem. I know a guy who was studying in the UK at the time, and suddenly he couldn't afford the final term's school fees because the money sent from home wouldn't cover it. So I know a university professor over here who had been due to study in Australia or Europe or the US, and suddenly they had to study in a local degree, in a local university, because they, they could no longer afford to pay the fees. Now, at a time like that, you know, what happens is the affluent people in a country like Malaysia, they got their savings in all kinds of things. They got plenty of spare cash. And 
yeah, their book value goes down, but they know it's going to change and they'll just buy up cheap assets. It's the ordinary guy. It's the people like those students who may be of the first generation in their family ever to get a university education or the small businessman who relies upon importing things. Those are the people who hurt. And I observed this in Singapore, which wasn't comparatively that badly hit. But you know Singapore. You know Orchard Road in Singapore. You know that if you try to walk across Orchard Road yes. from one <laughs> side to the other, you'll die. <laughs> Seven o'clock in the evening, you could probably walk across Orchard Road safely in 1997. People were staying home, right? And that Singapore, which wasn't badly hit. It was real bad over here. So I was here. Robin Lee, our CEO, he was working at the in the Securities Commission in Malaysia, and he saw exactly the same thing. He saw people unable to pay bills, suffering greatly. And as he said, you know, these are good people. These are the people who had done what mommy and daddy tell you to do. They'd studied hard. They got a job. They worked, you know, properly and everything else. And suddenly their savings aren't worth much. So, I mean, for me, I just, I did everything I've told you about. But for Robin, after that, you know, he's a finance guy. He ended up in London. He became the chief financial officer of the World Gold Council for a few years. And in that, he had the oversight of Spider Gold, which is a gold ETF. And he saw how the affluent protect their wealth with safe haven things like gold. Right? And so coming back to Malaysia with expertise in gold, he had the idea, well, why can't we shrink this down to a micro level? So ordinary people buy gold. They don't buy a whole gold bar. They buy a share of a gold bar. So effectively, it's a tokenized gold bar, right? So you can buy, on the Hello Gold platform, if you put it into US terms, you can buy as little as 20 cents worth of gold, right? You don't get anything you can take home, but you own a fraction of a gold bar that is sitting in a vault in Singapore. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So, I mean, there's physical gold backing this up. So who owns the gold itself? Hello Gold has... No, no it's interesting now. The gold is in an international vault in Singapore, but with Singapore and Malaysia both running, both operating on law that derives from the British system, according to British common law, the moment that the customer has bought that gold, it is theirs. So we set the whole thing up so that the customer owns their gold. We do not own their gold. Now, this is very important also from the fact that Malaysia is a predominantly Muslim country and Sharia law is important. So we have to be able to say the gold becomes yours the moment you buy it. So who owns the gold that's being sold? The government owns this gold? The government is selling it? Hello Gold owned the gold until the time of sale. <sighs> okay. Right? So we have got at the moment, I should say, probably one allocated one kilo bar and a half allocated kilo bar that we're currently selling. And depending upon gold prices and stock prices and everything else, it will go up and down. We might have two bars, two and a half bars. The moment we start selling into a, the last bar, we'll buy a new one. Oh, I see. Right? I because, see. Because the point is, if we ever run out of the, this bar, we stop selling. Because again, in order to be Sharia compliant, we cannot sell you a bar we don't have. Right? I mean, a lot of people may not understand this, but the point is that in a country like Malaysia, a lot of the poorest people are the Muslim communities, and they are the people we're aiming to help. So, you know, for them, Sharia compliance is very important. So the idea is kind of wealth preservation, right? Is to take some of your cash. Absolutely, yeah. And then from there, we're now 
at the point where we're trying to move it into other financial options. In Malaysia, you don't really have underbank, sorry, unbanked. You know, a lot of people talk about helping the unbanked. We don't really have unbanked. Most people in Malaysia have bank accounts, but you can do pretty much nothing with that bank account apart from put money in and then take it out again. So we're looking at building services for those who we call the underserved. So we're now looking at financial like insurance options, not a massive life insurance scheme, but at least something that can help people. Effectively, we're talking about the people who don't have enough for anybody to be interested in. Obviously, if you've got a couple of million, then the bank, every single banker on the planet wants to help you. You know, the less you've got, the financial planner isn't going to make enough on commission to help you, right? So we're trying to bring it down to a level where each of these people can get what they need. How do you market this to that? Like, so it's interesting because what you're saying is, don't leave a hundred units of cash in the bank. You're better preserved by putting that in gold right now since that doesn't need to be liquid. How do you market and get people to understand this? Well, we work with a lot of people. Oh, we've got some great people in Malaysia, for example, who run money blogs. Malaysia is a relatively poor economy. It's not quite, I mean, there are poorer countries, but so like everyone here is concerned about saving money, do think, doing things as cheaply as possible. We have quite a few personal finance bloggers. You know, we work with them. We work, basically everyone giving financial advice, we work with them. Interestingly, our biggest challenge was to overcome the idea that we're a scam. Yeah. Because there have been in the past a lot of scams around gold. I think a lot of what we do is, is making sure that we have an excellent reputation. We work with as many, you know, we get as many business partners as we can who would not deal with us if they'd done due diligence. We also have government backing now on, on a number of things that they had like top 10 fintech startups by in, uh, from a government entity. Yeah, we, we're in that group and so on. It's never purely the tech. It's always, yeah, it's always, <laughs> always the stuff that I used to hate, the marketing and everything else. But I, I guess this is the first time I've really enjoyed thinking about the marketing. So like when I joined Hello Gold, one of the first things I did was say, well, if I want to attract good tech people, I have to show we're a tech company. And so I started giving talks and organizing talks. In fact, the first, we revitalized the, the Golang Malaysia group and we ran the first few meetups at the Hello Gold premises. Nice. Just, yeah, and then we got people doing talks in like, all the other groups, the JavaScript groups, the Ruby groups, and so on, just to show people that we are here for the tech. We're here. Yeah, we're not a fly-by-night company. What I'd like to kind of finish up here is you've done a tremendous number of things in your career. And I feel like you've always been a little bit on this cutting edge, right? And you're on the cutting edge again here with, and I love the idea of spending your time trying to help people. I love that. But where's your head right now in terms of maybe the next three to five years? Is it really trying to do everything you can to help people in Hello Gold? Do you have some other thoughts and ideas on how you can help people with tech? I don't know. I'm a it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm through becoming involved in blockchain and everything else. I guess I got onto Twitter more and I start seeing there are some amazing people out there in the tech groups. I'm sure we share many of their contacts. I mean, I think my head is probably much heavily in Malaysia on one level, you know, purely because I'm here and my family's here. I like it here. 
they're basically just teaching people as well. Because, I mean, I've been programming now for half a century, and I still enjoy it. I hated the few times I got demoted into management. Demoted, nice. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of us who are like, who stay programmers for a long time, we were a bit quirky. We now have a platform that allows us to do that and become far more comfortable with ourselves. You look at the crowd on, on Twitter and you say, okay, well, I'm not alone. <laughs> right. And one of the things I like sharing with people is that if you're going to do tech and like you're heavily into tech, there are a number of things you need to be aware of. Firstly, you need to keep learning all the time. You know, there have been times when I learned one, two programming languages every single year, right? I mean, like the lady who's now my wife, she was doing a, she took up her master's course and I actually learned CUDA programming, you know, GPU programming, just to help her get through the modules in her class. You have to keep on learning. And the other thing is that as you're learning, inevitably you're going to kind of climb up a bit. You're going to have people re reporting to you. And these people are going to know more than you are because they will have read the book or the website or the whatever more recently than you have. And you've got all your commitments, so you can't quite keep up as well. Learn from your juniors, teach your juniors, because that way you know, you're going you're to have a far better environment. You'll never know it all. Well, with Go, I think you do pretty well, but you know. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, like seriously, I do. I look out at some of the people doing YouTube presentations, and hell, these people are really, really talented, and I love it. Yeah, and you can learn from everybody. I think. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love everything you said there. I think it's spot on. And I love that you're going to continue to teach because I know you were doing Ethereum. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe in the US you are brought up differently. In, in the UK, we will, here in tech, you seldom think about money. <laughs> I would advise everyone, think about money. In my time, I've got lucky a few times. And then I've been through, through a lot of periods when I was struggling like hell. If you get lucky, take what's there, save it. It'll make your life a lot less painful. <laughs> my dad always says it's not what you earn it's what you save right so oh, absolutely yeah spot on there yeah i wish i'd learned that 50 years ago i mean it's my wife that's taught me that <laughs> so that's only in recent years have i actually managed to save anything brilliant okay our hour is up so dave do me a favor tell everybody how they can find you and twitter and how they can reach out to you if they're interested in Hello, Gold, or got questions around any things that we've talked about today? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, Twitter, I'm Appleton Dave. God, the election's over. <laughs> I'm, I'm not <laughs> yeah, so Twitter, I'm Appleton Dave. I'm mainly talking about Ethereum stuff. I follow a lot of ghost stuff. I like following people who are doing interesting stuff. Oh, and I love the stuff you're doing with Matt on Heavy Server, by the way. So Twitter is probably the best place. I mean, hello gold is hellogold.com. So Dave, thank you so much for giving us that hour of your time and telling your story. I love to hear these stories and I love what you're doing at Hello Gold. I love how socially conscious the company is and I, and I really hope there's a lot of great success there. Really, really appreciate, appreciate the time. This is Bill Kennedy. This is the Arn Labs podcast and hope to see everybody again next time.